From zero to money, we unveil the trials and successes SaaS business founders have faced when starting their own businesses. Stay tuned to learn from the ideas that can inspire and change you. Enjoyed the show? Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss our new episodes. If you're interested in learning more about ZAR's managed technology services, come visit us at ZAR.net. That's ZSAH.net. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Amir Hashmi from ZAR Limited, and um, I'm just here to introduce our guest, Tim Dunn, who's the CEO of eSpider. So eSpider is a UK-headquartered RegTech SaaS company with offices in Ireland and Germany. eSpider's privacy compliance and e-discovery platform helps organizations protect the personal information they hold for their customers, partners, and employees. The solution uniquely supports business executives to effectively manage their compliance with the latest global privacy regulations, such as GDPR. At this point, what I'll do is I'll hand over to Tim to just give us a brief intro to yourself, Tim. That would be great. Love to. Thanks very much, Amir, and I appreciate the invite uh, to, to have the chat this morning. So uh, I've been in the uh, IT industry and mostly software industry for over 33 years now. Um, I was working it out the other day and have worked with a number of startups through to exit, uh, as well as uh, running a couple of large teams at some global vendors. Uh, so uh, a bit of a veteran. For the last 25 years or so, I've focused predominantly on an area of cybersecurity called identity and access management. So I guess that's my speciality. That's fantastic. So what I'll do is I'll quickly um, say thanks again to Tim for joining us. And we're going to go through some of the questions and I'll, I'll cover the theme of the podcast as well in just a second. Um, a brief introduction to Jar. As some of our regular listeners know, um, and hopefully some new some new listeners, um, we are um, a leading private multi-managed cloud company. Uh, we have uh, a global offering, and um, we are your cloud DevOps and data and analytics people. We service many different verticals uh, and many different sizes of, of company and organization. Um, so anything cloud, anything DevOps, anything data, come to us and we can uh, look after you. But let me get on to the theme of the podcast. So uh, in this series, as, as hopefully you guys have, have, have heard in the previous ones, we explore uh, with SaaS leaders such as Tim what they do to stay on top of their game and for them to then share their kind of three top tips for other SaaS entrepreneurs so, so we go through a series of questions that we've, we've a standard set of questions that we, we kind of ask these leaders. Um, and then, uh, and then we go through their three top tips afterwards as well. Uh, we try and keep it nice and casual. And then we, we, we finish off with a kind of little summary of those tips. So kind of without further ado, Tim, I'll jump in and start asking you some questions. <laughs> um, and uh, and then yeah we'll we'll see how we get on. It's good to speak to you, Tim, as well. Tim and I know one another already. Um, we we met we met when did we meet, Tim? We met three years ago. Ooh, at least, oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was, yeah, yeah. 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 It was before we started eSpider, anyway. So you've seen That's the whole right. journey for us guys. Exactly, exactly. That's fantastic. No, great. So here's the first question. So so before we start talking about your business. 
Can you tell us something interesting about yourself that that our listeners wouldn't know? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm uh, the the wrong side of fifty now. Um, I turned fifty a few years ago, and um, I haven't really had a major midlife crisis yet. But I've done a couple of things that I probably would have raised eyebrows with the family. So one thing that I did is agree to a charity boxing match around three years ago. And um, the idea is that you have some intensive training for five weeks uh, and then you, you you get in the ring with somebody else who's made the same ridiculous um, commitment. Um, it's, it's one of those situations where obviously your family and your friends come, huge audiences often come to these events. And um, at the time I was working for a company that announced it to the whole of the staff that Tim was going to go into a ring and get himself repeatedly punched by another person. And would anybody like to, uh, to give him money? Um, and obviously once you have the result of the fight that then gets published to everybody. So, um, I think I did it for a couple of reasons. Um, I wanted to test my fitness a little bit, given that I had run fairly regularly in my forties, but you know, I'm not a hit, um, a health freak by, by any stretch of the imagination. And I just wanted to see if I could go through this. But it's also, and this this does come on to some of the areas we may cover in the general questions. It's it's putting you through these kind of uncomfortable, out of your comfort zone situations and seeing how you deal with it for yourself. So it was as much about that, doing something completely unknown and, you know, something that was pretty scary that I enjoyed. Sure. Wow, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Uh, I've got to ask the question. Did you did you knock the other guy out? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't a knockout. Uh, I no. did win and I won on okay. points. Um, but again, interestingly, I think it was more through fitness. I, I did meet up with the guy maybe about three weeks beforehand and he said he'd just come back from holiday and hadn't really started training yet. Okay. Uh, whereas I I trained very hard for it. So um, I think he just ran out of puff after the first um the first uh, round and it was just a case of running away from him as quick as possible. So I can imagine, I can imagine people, people do, I mean, people forget how tiring it is, right? They see on TV and they forget that these, these people have trained for months if, you know, for, and, and they're, you know, extremely fit and to go even one or two rounds takes everything out of the normal. I think your average show, right? It will, it will take everything out of you, right? So it's very much a fitness <laughs> absolutely absolutely it was grueling and the, and the training and the kind of circuit training was incredibly intense and got harder and harder towards the session and you know and that's three rounds you know yeah. and uh, he warned you you will be gassed out as they put it um mm-hmm. after the first round so you've got to train so yes a, a brilliant experience i've got to say yeah fantastic well that that was very interesting <laughs> So yeah, so let, let's 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 move on to these uh, these business related questions. So so what can can you tell us the number one thing that was holding you back from becoming a successful business person when you were starting out? Um, and and maybe mention a bit about how you kind of managed to overcome it. I, I think it's it's something in our industry um, that we don't particularly like to talk about very much, and that's just the general fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whenever you take on something new, which obviously at the beginning of your career, it's likely to be, you've got that fear that, you know, you're not going to be able to do the job. You've never done it before. And, you know, 
how you get over it, as, as the question was phrased, Amir, is I don't think you truly ever do, because obviously through your career, you're always either moving up into a new job, learning something new. Um, I think, as you mentioned at the front of the, the podcast, Jill, you're having to keep up with a shifting business environment and paradigm and new technologies. So mm-hmm. there's always something that's <laughs> got you as our, um, some people call it over the skis. You know, you always feel that, you know, you've, it's, it's uncomfortable often. And, you know, there's, there's little sayings, things like fake it till you make it or, you know, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's little things that, that kind of, tellingly show that we all feel the same way that that kind of imposter syndrome at first day of you know i can't believe i've got this role is it too big for me you know am i going to succeed in it and i think as you get family and children who rely on you and the consequences become bigger suddenly that adds extra pressure to it's not only for me that this has got to work it's it's for my family so Fear of failing can be a little bit crippling and, and can be something that you've got to get over. But it's something you always have to try and manage. It gets it gets a little bit easier as you get through your career because you start to see circumstances over again. Even if it's not exactly the same as something you've experienced before, you at least say, well, that's a little bit like this when that happened to me. And, and what I did under those circumstances is that. And again, another saying that that you kind of hear a lot is um the fear of fear is is worse than the actual consequence of you know yes. itself and and often you do live and i get the worst case scenario in a circumstance but you get there and you go well that wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be so being mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable isn't as bad as you think it's going to be at the beginning of your career um so yeah. Mm-hmm. It gets easier to manage just because you're used to it, but it never goes away. You're always having to manage it in some way and just remind yourself that, you know, as long as you do the right things and you kind of stay true to what you're trying to achieve, that even if it does fail under some circumstances, you're probably going to take something from that that will help you further along the line. So you become a little more philosophical. Yeah, no, actually, I think I think that's uh, that's really really insightful, and I think the you know this this whole kind of failure thing, like you say, it's more accepted in certain societies, and you know you know across the pond in the US, for example, failure is is seen is not seen as such a bad thing. We don't have to don't have to hide away um, if we do fail, um, but it's what we learn, isn't it? It's what we learn from it. It's what we take from it, and how we then apply that learning in the, in, in the next thing that we do or in the next saturation, uh, as, as you said, is, I think, I think it's spot on. Let's move on to the next question. And that is, um, I like this one. So this is just, just tell us, tell us the best business advice that you've received. Um, and, and maybe why was it the best, you know, um, you know, have, have you, you know, have you implemented it um, and used it, for example, but what's the best business advice that you've received? Yeah, it is a great question. Um, and my background sales. So not only have I been in the IT industry, but it's from the moment I left college, it's been in a sales environment. And I moved away from Wales in my first job, just to give you some context on my answer um, as we get to it, is my first job after studying computer technology at college was 
a sales job, telesales, selling computer ribbons and floppy disks for any of us on the, the podcast who remember those. But it was for a very major um, company. Uh, and I'll get to the advice in a second. But that role was very immediate in terms of sales. There was a whiteboard up in the uh, middle of an open plan office. By the way, this was late, late 80s. So it, it wasn't that high tech. And okay. at the end of the day, each of the telesales team would put up their numbers for the day. So, you mm-hmm. know, it was that immediate. And the piece of advice I had was from a sales manager at that time who said, obviously, you get a target. Obviously, we look at the numbers like this, but never forget as a salesperson that, that revenue is, is a lag measure. It isn't something you chase. It's something that, that is a result of you doing the right things. So don't, when you're doing your job, focus on the number, focus on ensuring that, you know, you're doing the right number of calls, that you're, you're supporting the customer, that the customer likes buying from you. And what right. you'll see is that ultimately the revenue follows, you know. So as long as you've got a decent business proposition, that that's what happens. So, um, and I think this came, this piece of advice came about a, uh, a month into the job when the, the slight honeymoon period is over and, and my numbers were kind of middling. And I was worried again, that fear of failing and not having to go back to Wales with my tail between my legs because this was big flashy London in the eighties. And, mm. uh, my boss gave me this advice. He said, just go back to your desk, make the calls. And I'd say within a month, not only had my numbers turned around, but it was basically people were starting to call me from these companies to say, look, I'm not getting advice or support or customer service from anywhere else in the business. You seem to care. Can you do this for me? Which was outside my role, but I never turned them away. I always said, yeah, I'll see what I can do for you. And mm-hmm. soon people were coming back to me. Soon they were giving me a call to tell me competitors of ours had given them a call and were trying to poach the business. Mm-hmm. And I found I was making my numbers just off recurring business from loyal customers that we built in a completely greenfield site you know you're given a kind of training area that nobody's sold into yet when you first start and you have to build it up Mm -hmm. i'm so sorry it's a long-winded answer to your question but through my whole career it's Mm -hmm. shown me that look start with what is it you've got to achieve in this business area treat it like your business even if you're you know if it's a sales region and then serve the customer as you'd like to be served if you were the customer and ultimately, that will lead to loyal customers. And what I've found is there's certain businesses I've done and individuals that I've done business with over and over again in my career because they trust me. I trust them and they know that what I'm bringing them, their relationship with me is more important than necessarily that particular proposition at any one time. And I have said to people, look, I don't think this is for you. Do you know what I mean? I know your environment. I know what you're trying to achieve. And. And this isn't, but I know that ultimately that will pay dividends when, you know, I do say we'll do business. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really good. You know, the the trust thing that you, you mentioned, the trust and the kind of reliability, I th- you, like you say, you, it's definitely, you know, I hear that. I hear that myself. I believe in that obviously myself, um, but I, I've heard that from others. And then like you say, with, I think, I think with, with some, with some wisdom and years, you know, on your shoulders, on our shoulders, you know, we, we, we know that that works. Yeah. Um, and like you say, you've, you've, you've obviously, you're, you've probably still got relationships with, with people from back then to some degree and, 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 and more recent. So yeah, you know, I would, you know, 100% agree with, with, with what you've mentioned there. And, and 
just 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 to add, maybe add to that, right? But um, one of the one of the things with you know business is about relationships. Is I mean, it's, it's fundamentally you you buy from people that you generally will like, yeah. Which mm, goes back to the point. You know, if you don't like someone, then you you won't really want to buy from them. You know, you, know, you might begrudgingly buy from them because they have something that they have a product that you need, but but you won't you might not want to, or you might not give them as much business as you could have. What are your thoughts on kind of scaling that? Because obviously these are individual kind of points that we have. So like, you know, you, you know, I've built up relationships with people, you've built up relationships with people. And as an organization, when we want to try and scale, what are your kind of thoughts with regards to that? Is there an, is there an ethos that, that we build into our sales teams? Oh, that's a cracking question. And, and I was thinking of my answer, uh, the, the kind of revenues are like measure and, you know, this is what we need to do as individuals. When I was thinking of a SaaS company, mm-hmm. SaaS companies, you're right, need to think about scale. They need to think about how they can be efficient about onboarding new customers. And it's interesting, but obviously SaaS is still relatively new in the, in, in the whole scheme of things. And mm-hmm. I saw the change in um, uh, technology companies providing products either on premise or, you know, in the cloud, but by individual enterprise customer to wanting to move to a kind of automated SaaS model. And it gets more and more. We need to onboard them fast. We need to automate as much of this as possible. We need to have, you know, limited friction, limited touch. And I think the challenge with that is that does kind of fly, if you're not careful, as counterintuitive to, mm-hmm having a proper engagement with the customer. And so a lot of the metrics around, you know, annual recurring revenues and how do we ramp them up and scale them up? You need to think about that in terms of how you still keep the business um, scalable, but with the right touch of customer. I think the most important thing for me when I've been considering that is revenue will recur healthily because customers are buying from you again and again or don't stop buying from you. So what you do for the year or the three years, whatever it may be, that they're a customer of yours is going to constantly affect their decision ultimately to keep on doing business with you or much more importantly, I think, to scale is give you more business because it's eight times easier to sell to a new uh, to a, a, an existing customer than it is to to acquire a new one. Absolutely. So yes. I think that the one thing when I've been thinking about this recently, actually, is you need to segment your customers for sure. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that 80 20 rule, you're going to have some customers at the top of your pyramid who are giving you a fair proportion of your revenue. They've, they've grown rapidly with you. You've landed, you've expanded. You're offering more and more services to them. Every time you bring out a new value added service, they take it. They probably have a higher degree of touch than, you know, um, the, uh, the mass of your customers down the bottom. But you have to have a thought of how you move customers up and have as many of them moving up that model as possible. Um, mm-hmm. How do you ensure that people that automate in and take your basic services ultimately start to get a experience that means they want to do more with you and take more from you. So I think that needs to be instilled to to part of your question into your sales model, into your marketing model, um, that you are having frequently touch. You're frequently touching these people. You're not just trying to sell products at them. You're trying to provide them with insights, things that make a difference. Podcasts like this one, Amir, I mean, 
you know, you, you don't have to provide meaningful podcasts like this. And I was a listener. So, you know, I've listened to the other podcasts and I found them very, very useful. So, you know, yeah. it's things like this, I think, that everybody can benefit from that make a big difference to the type of company you're going to end up being. And again, these ARR, CAC, LTV, they're basically EBITDA even, ultimately, all yeah. are lag measures of a business that runs well. Yeah, absolutely. Not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, I think, you know, getting across this information, like I say, as an individual, as, as you mentioned, you know, one of the best business, pieces of business advice you got was to be personal, was to show people trust and care and attention. And, and then... And then scaling that, and the reason why I bought it scaling is a bit, bit of a left field question, but the, but it applies. And you mentioned it applies to us as a SaaS, as a SaaS firm. We want to scale, so we need to get that across to people through our marketing, for example, on a larger scale. To say, look, we're we're now a group of people that have all of these qualities, right? You you mentioned the podcast series, and the podcast series is for us as it gets us it gets gets us out there in a much more casual casual manner. Um, gets you out there and gets everyone you know gets everyone out this for people to realize that we're you know behind all of these kind of jazzy websites and services we are people <laughs> and mm-hmm. we know what we're doing right and you guys know what you're doing and you, you guys are, are the best at what you do but here you are as, as, a, as a normal human being talking about yourself and telling us about your boxing match <laughs> which is awesome right uh, that's great okay that's great great i'll move on to the next question right so the, so the next question is about technology right so we like to talk about technology right we 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 we're, we're techie by nature uh, you know techie strategists can you tell us what the kind of best technology advice that you've received is over the over, over the years uh yes i can and it sounds fairly obvious but as you say as we're inherently geeks um, we love talking about the coolness of technology, but um, I think the best advice I had was from a very successful product manager, an entrepreneur, and he, and as a sales guy, this this was, I guess, uh, very natural to me in terms of being able to understand it, and that was look at the business problem and, and try to consider business problems before you consider the technologies. Is there a business problem that this is solving or have you come up with a cool set of features and functionality and technology buzzwords that, if you like, will then look for the problem or mm-hmm. overplay a problem that really isn't that big a problem and certainly doesn't justify the spend on the technology? Uh, so I think that research into if there's a business problem, what the pain points are specific to that business problem, why it's costly, timely, whatever it may be, painful or risky for an organization not to have a solution to this problem. And then to look at how it can best be technically achieved in terms of a solution to that problem. Because right. it, even now, if you and and we've been going through a funding round and there's a lot of value that seems to be um, hung on the fact you've got AI or you've got blockchain or you've got machine learning. And, you know, everybody's trying to throw the buzzwords into their product. But we've always tried to be very deliberate in terms of saying it's nice to have those things. But are they really adding value to the problem and how are they adding value to that problem? And let's just make sure whatever we're discussing is fit for purpose and not just really cool to have. So yeah. I guess that was that was the advice I had is don't mm-hmm. go for don't go for cool features just because you can 
uh, and don't even, I guess, take a product to market, you know, just because there's cool technology there, uh, ensure that there's a real business need for it. Absolutely. And that is, you know, that is, I think that is for all the people listening, right? Listen very carefully. Rewind this and listen to that again, because that is, is extremely sound advice. Yeah. Um, quite often you, you all, all, all people do is go for the latest tech just for the sake of it. Um, and it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily fit into what the, the, the firm or the organization want to achieve. You're right. 100%. Um, and buying buying in skills, you know, people forget that buying in skills for for some of the latest tech, the latest greatest tech, it tends can can be expensive and can actually be very tricky because you you tend to find a lot of cowboys in that you know with, with regards to new technology that haven't actually got that much experience, et cetera, et cetera. So that can lead to a deficient product or service. Um, so yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, really really good advice. Moving back into business. What would you say or tell us a story of kind of the worst business decision um, that you've made for your business? Yeah, I'll probably put the same caveat on this that I've noticed all of your other podcast um, uh, interviewees have put on it, which is, you know, mistakes are very often learning experiences. And we all know that. And I think I think that's really important to remember. It it really is um, because it's easy to beat yourself up for things that have been that that really don't matter anymore but when we when we started uh well before we actually started e-spider there was another iteration of the company very briefly um mm-hmm. i think probably when we were talking initially um a mere company yeah. called ILDS and we had we brought on board uh, quite a few non-executive directors people mm-hmm. who were going to give us um skill sets and advice and experience that we didn't have on the ground um so we filled up our board with a, a number of these individuals however it was the three founders um who were on a day-to-day basis seeming to sweat and do everything that the company needed to do in the early days and i kind of thought well i'm giving away some equity for this for these roles and i'm not seeing the kind of level of value that we need and the type of input that we need to, to have short term and medium term results. There's a lot of, uh, you know, hypothesizing and nice board meetings. But ultimately, mm. I, I, I don't need that right now. You know, I need people who can deliver potential customers, potential investment routes, you know, um, people who can make introductions. I don't know, but things that are going to make a difference immediately to the traction of the business. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't happening. So what we did is we kind of closed that thing down immediately. And this was only kind of a kind of three, three, four month bit and set up mm-hmm. the spider as a new limited company and just had the three founders and said, fine, okay, let's, let's get a minimum viable product out there in the market. Our solution is around GDPR. I think what you mentioned at the beginning and, and kind of privacy regulation and compliance. And that was coming into play in May of, um, 20, uh, 2018. And mm-hmm. so I said, look, we've got to have a, pro- this was, this was the end of 2017. I said, I want a product on the market that can get us some early adopters and customers to get into compliance by January, which right. gives us a six month runway. So, you know, we gave ourselves some aggressive goals. We gave ourselves achievable that the three of us could do on our own. And then mm-hmm. once we've got that and we've got customers and we've got talking points together, then then we can start to look at how we scale the business. But right now, 
let's not have this as a vanity project. Let's get out there and actually start to get some achievable results for ourselves. Long answer to your question, but the mistake I think I made is we mm-hmm. started to bring too much people into the business too early that weren't really adding value. So yes. we, we took a step back from that and streamlined pretty quickly. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's, it's excellent, excellent to know. And again, that, that is something that is, is quite easy to fall into. You know, we need advisors. I, I think something that I've learned as well, just to, just to chime in, right? Is, is you need advisors. We need advisors uh, as in, in our businesses, in our organizations. Uh, but there's a right time. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a remit that they should have as well. We just, it, it, yeah, we, we need to catch them at the right time, get them, get them into the business, um, at the right level as well, quite often. Um, but nothing beats, especially in the startup, in, you know, when you're starting a business, uh, nothing beats graft, hard graft, right? And, and, and you, know, you establish a strategy and just, and, and then you need to go for it. So. Yeah, and uh, that's, a, that's a critical point to me because I don't want it to feel like I'm kicking those individual advisors. You know, I would at the right time go back to any of those advisors exactly. and, yeah, and yeah. take their results. You know, they, they really were trying to help. And they've, yeah. they've stayed in touch with the business ever since. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's great. That's good. Very good, very good. So, all right, let's, let's move on to the next uh, question. So now we're going back into, so we've, we've gone back and forth, but we're going back into technology. So what's the worst, what would you say is the worst technology decision you've made for your business? Yeah, well, my two co-founders luckily are are technical rock stars. So touch wood so far, and we could make a a mistake at any point, obviously, uh, we realize that, but we haven't made any significant missteps yet. I think there's two two perspectives on it when it comes to technology. One, we're a technology company developing technology solutions. So it's, is there something we've built into our solution, which you know, was a mistake and we've we've re sure. engineered or changed direction. And the other one is uh, kind of the infrastructure and the the um, technology that we leverage as any any company does. I would say the one thing we're constantly evaluating um, and it kind of comes back to a general consideration, a consideration. One thing I say we've, we've decided that's helped us to navigate any potential challenges is What's core to us as an organization and a technology company and what should we be outsourcing or taking in from other companies where those technologies are already mature or other markets? So if I give you just a, a, an example of where that may be a consideration with our own product, we may mm-hmm. decide that workflow of a compliance solution is important. Do we need to build a workflow engine of our own? So it's mm-hmm. specific or do we say, well, no, workflow is a, re- a business workflow and technical workflow is a really mature area with good solutions out there. Let's use a recognized workflow engine and just have the APIs to link into it. And then it stays fairly agnostic because you can use other engines if our customers have them. So it's what do we want to own and build ourselves and what mm-hmm. do we outsource to somebody else or, or you know, or use um, technologies mm-hmm. that already exist? In terms of being a SaaS company, we're constantly evaluating how much platform and infrastructure we have ourselves. And by the way, it's typically limited. And how much do we use solutions like Azure or AWS or, you know, excellent hosting services from a third party to be able to run these? I mean, by the way, we come down very strongly on 
don't spend all your time trying to build your own infrastructure and manage your own infrastructure. Yeah. There's very good companies, yourselves included, who can help mm-hmm. you to have a proper cloud strategy. So yeah. that will always yeah. be something we outsource. But we've always considered, you know, we're always considering what should we own ourselves and manage ourselves, particularly as we're a cybersecurity company. So there's some things we need to ensure are very secure. And how yeah. much can we trust in a cloud environment? Yeah. Uh, Not sure I answered your question. We haven't made many mistakes yet, but I didn't want to make it sound like we were we weren't constantly aware of the fact it could happen at any moment. You know, again, what with regards to the balancing act that I think what you're getting at, don't don't let me put words in your mouth, but you know, the kind of constant measuring you're doing of your business and your your service to say, okay, well, where you know where are we going to get the most value? Yeah, but but also how can we kind of garner the most competitive advantage, right? So, like you know, like you say, you're a SaaS company. Your your strengths are in your tech. You don't want to be messing around with servers and kit, for example, right? That's that's not going to give you one value, and it's not going to give you any kind of advantage, really, right? Uh, whereas if you were some sort of high performance computing platform, where you could maybe offer something very special to other people through your SaaS service, there may be some bespoke. Kind of infrastructure could work, isn't it? So it, it, it all depends on yeah. measuring, taking from your business, and then and then kind of mapping to the kind of technology needs that you mentioned. So again, you know, what you're doing is what any good SaaS company is constantly doing is measuring that and kind of you know deciding, okay, well this is where we stop and this is where we let someone else take over, for example. Um, right, excellent. Tell us something. That's um, that's been working for your for your company uh, on the kind of sales and marketing front. Um, so you know, and and maybe you know if you can maybe go into a bit of insight as to why that why you think that's been working. Yeah, as, yes, absolutely. Um, so as a strategy on day one, we decided our go to market, uh, our primary go to market approach would be channel centric. So we'd work with partners to get into the market and to service the market. So rather than do as much direct to ourselves, a number of obvious reasons that would give us scale um, because we could just either have more partners or do more business through larger partners. Um, it gave us warm customer relationships because there were already trusted customers of the partners that could take our solution into them. Um, and it outsourced a lot of cost because the partners already had sales forces, marketing um, infrastructure. So, you know, there was a lot of reasons why we went for this. And, and that seems to be bearing fruit for us and, and you know, working. Our, our partners have been – we kept very deliberately through the first few years. We've kept our partner base small. We want to ensure they're fully enabled, that, you know, that we've got the model completely tied down with them. Um, we've taken a lot of input from them in terms of how we, what they need from us and how we can work with them. And it's also meant that, um, a lot of them are managed service providers themselves. So they can provide the eSpider platform as part of their offering and even embed it into their solution. So in some instances, customers don't really know their or consider that they're buying eSpider because they're just buying a managed service from a customer yeah. for their privacy. So that model seems to be borne out, and we're glad we've taken that approach. Um, a period, really, um, and working with yourselves has been a delight as well. So, um, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, this. Uh, hope, yes, we're. We're. I think that's a model that we will continue to invest in, and any 
direct sales capability and marketing capability we have ourselves will be to enhance the ability of our partners to go into the market. So we will support them. Excellent. Fantastic. And it's really good to really good to know. Fantastic. We'll move on to the next question. So, so can you tell us the top three metrics that you use to keep, uh, that you use to keep on the pulse of your company to make sure it's heading in the right direction? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the standard ones that you sh- you'd be looking at with a SaaS with a dashboard. Um, yeah. But for me, it's uh, because we've got that channel centric model. I'm interested in the spread of business that we're getting across the board, because obviously, if all of our business was coming in through one partner and mm-hmm. not through the others, then you've got a, got a single point of failure or, you know, yeah. too much too much uh, risk there. So I'm interested in how our model is working across our customer partner base, make sure that they're winning, ensure that it's a really difficult thing to measure when you've got a partner centric model, but customer satisfaction is difficult because obviously we're not the primary support for a an end user customer. Um, But we do do the litmus test constantly of the customers that are using the solution and lucky we're in that position where, you know, we're still at the level of scale that we can keep in fairly close contact or visibility to the customers we've got. So sure. mm-hmm. um, it, it's really uh, are our customers satisfied um, how much revenue we're getting and, and new logos at this stage from customers as important to us right now as the revenue is the number of logos and in industries that we're that we're satisfying, uh, because that means more right now to our understanding of use cases and the ongoing development and relevance of the solution than the pure revenue does. Again, a lag measure that will follow. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that you, we find that, you know, I, I find that and I've seen that as well with, with SaaS firms is that, you know, these, like you say, re- revenue is not certainly near the beginning and the beginning is is not necessarily a good a good, it's not necessarily a good or accurate indicator. It's, it's more about usage, right? Because if something's being used, <laughs> uh, then, then, then it means it's wanted, um, and valued normally. Um, and that means that there's no, that, that it can be monetized if it's not monetized enough or at all to begin with. So yeah, you're 100%, you know, again, you know, spot on with, with regards to, you know, doing customer satisfaction and seeing how, how much your service is used. Um, uh, revenue and revenue models change. They can change as well. It's not, they're not, you know, they're becoming more and more, uh, more and more diverse, I think, with regards to SaaS as time is going, is, is going by as well. So let's go on to the next question. You know, can you tell us where you think your industry is going, you know, in future wise? You know, where, where, where is it, where is it heading? Yeah. Again, if we take the same, uh, it is a fantastic question and potentially a daunting one for anybody to predict. But it's worth saying if you come at it from the same basis as we did with the products and the technologies, which is what are the business problems and what's the general uh, trend of companies and how they work right now. I think COVID-19 has obviously been a huge wake up call for companies. And I guess it's got some major society impacts moving forward um we will find that businesses are going to have to be for future circumstances like covid um more agile um there's there's a lot of digital transformation projects now it's it's become one of the new hot topics and a lot of them being driven by people moving from legacy environments that really hobbled them 
when suddenly their supply chains and their employees and their customers were highly mobile, working from home, uh, business was disrupted. And, you know, they needed to be a lot more agile than many companies could be. But and I don't think it's going to go back. And I think most of us don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. Expensive offices, long commutes, which are not productive, um, people with poor life work balances. And in fact, businesses realizing that you don't lose productivity just because people aren't all together in an office. Um, I know there are some benefits now and again to having that, but it's going to change the way organizations run and therefore what technologies are going to need be needed in the future to service that new paradigm. So mm-hmm. I think that's what's going to change. There's going to be a lot more happening with the cloud. There's going to be a lot more happening with digital transformation. There's going to be a lot more SaaS services that can be consumed, you know, very, very quickly and, and agilely. Um, and supply chains are going to be a lot more flexible in the future. I think what that looks like, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not that much of a soothsayer, but it's certainly going to change. And I think the uh, technology companies that realize that and start to service that new way of working are going to be the winners in the future. So the final question really is, if you could tell us your kind of top three tips for building a successful SaaS company. Yeah, absolutely. And I will I'll keep these brief, um, but bearing in mind the time. I mean, but we've touched on we've touched on a number of these points through the conversation anyway. Yeah. The first one is remember to proactively engage with your customers. Um, however, you can do that uh, for the mass. You know, you need a, a, an efficient method of, of constantly contacting them with meaningful information that's going to add value to what they're doing. And ensure that you've got a proper account plan with probably more dedicated investment for the companies that really make a difference to your revenue and your bottom line and mm-hmm. how your product shaped moving forward. So proactively do that and your, your ARR will follow. The second one is, um, and we haven't really touched on this, but I think it's crucial to a lot of these conversations that and, and answers that we've had. And that's think about as early as possible the kind of culture for the company that you want? What is it that you you want your company to be? What's it going to be like to work for? What's it going to be like in terms of how it works with its customers? I mean, you, you mentioned, Amir, that people like doing business with people. And, you know, there is a huge temptation at any point in the company's development to do something that doesn't necessarily feel right, isn't normally how you'd want to do business, but how can you possibly turn it down? And I think... Having setting yourself a North Star, which says, no, this this is the company we want to be. This is how we want to. I think Google's do no evils um, for a yeah. wry smile is, um, is 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 an example of a great starting point. You know, yeah. have the right idea. Then don't compromise when it comes to hiring the individuals into that culture. Just because they're superstars, if they don't fit what you want the company to be and how you want the company to operate and how the chemistry works, then, you know, it's probably ultimately not the right thing to do and Mm -hmm. and the way you treat your customers. So anyway, I'd I'd say your culture. And the final one is always aim to be hiring people that are more talented than you are, not just in skill sets, but don't ever feel threatened by the fact that. Um, an individual you believe is better at doing what they do than you are, um, yeah. because that's the type of team you want around you. 
Um, luckily, I set a pretty low bar uh, for people, so um, <laughs> that's been an easy one to attire to. Um, but I mean, it's that's that's quite important to me. And and always consider that what you're actually doing is you're you're hiring yourself out of the job in that this is the person that's going to ultimately take your place, and you'd want the huge confidence that they're going to uh, be able to do that. So anyway, I think that's my third point: hire as high as possible and don't be threatened if you think they're better than you are. That's great. Awesome. Fantastic. I think they were really, really good pieces of advice. Um, I think it's been a, a really, really good conversation with you today, Tim. Um, so I'd like to say thank you very much, Tim Dunn, CEO of eSpider, yeah, for, for the chat. Uh, I think it was honestly it was a really good conversation. Is I find I personally find these conversations fantastic um, because you know everyone else is our listeners are learning from you um, and I'm learning as well, which is fantastic, right? And you know it's um, it's always good to to have a chat about these things and listen to other people's journeys and and their advice based on experience um, and wisdom. So thank you very much, Tim. Again, it's been fantastic. Likewise, I've enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks very much, Amir. Great. All right. Speak to you soon, Tim. Cheers.